You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Music Tectonics. I'm your irregular guest host, Tristra Neuer Jaeger, strategist at Rock, Paper, Scissors, a music tech PR firm. I'm really thrilled to talk today with Dr. Don Rose, a senior researcher at the Lucerne University of Applied Sciences and Arts in Switzerland. Her research is focused on musician health and health through music, subjects that speak loudly to many of you out there in the music tech community. She received her PhD from Goldsmiths University of London, writing her dissertation on the effects of music education in children and adults. As part of her postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Herefordshire, she investigated the effects of auditory cueing for people with Parkinson's. And I really hope I got Herefordshire right. <laughs> On top of her academic work, Dr. Rose is a drummer, martial artist, and trained therapist specializing in performance anxiety. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Rose. Or is it okay if I call you Dawn? Of course. Call me Dawn Tristra. And it's Hartfordshire if you want to be completely correct. <laughs> I, I knew I was going to yankify that and completely flub that <laughs> as I was about to say the word. So I'm glad it's really, really awesome to both learn how to say Hertfordshire and to get to talk to you today about all things music, health, and body-mind related. So I'm going to start off with one of my favorite questions and one of the easiest questions I hope to answer, which is, how did you get into music, Don? Actually, my first memory of getting into music is really physical, like something just connected in my body and, and set me alight. I was seven years old and the song was Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick by Ian Jury and the Blockheads. And I remember hearing it and just running around the room, jumping and dancing like, well, like a lunatic, except that everything suddenly made sense. I mean, it's such a weird song now that I think about it, but it was such a visceral experience. And later I learned to play drums. And I think music has been just a really active experience for me ever since. I, I loved my life as a musician, going on tour and having adventures all over the world, but also teaching. And that's really how I got interested in music and the mind, partly from students who look to you as their teacher to help, but also musician friends who were suffering with things like stage fright, so I started to study, first as a counsellor and hypnotherapist, and then I talked my way onto the Music, Mind and Brain MSc course at Goldsmiths, and I really had no idea what I'd taken on, and it was a seriously steep learning curve. But now, somehow, I have a PhD in music psychology, though really I'm just the same punk drummer. I mean, I think I'm so lucky, I can hardly believe where music has taken me, and I'm pretty sure it saved me many times over. That's amazing. Um, so as you're going down this journey and, you know, playing with punk bands and rock bands, when did you first start to get intrigued by music's effects on our mind and body? So what, how did you go from um, being a practicing musician to someone who decided to research music? I guess there were two um, avenues. So as with most musicians, you sort of have to teach in between touring and uh, try and make ends meet. So on the one hand, there was a kind of pastoral element to looking after my students. And I had students ranging from six to 60, but uh, they all had various kind of problems. Sometimes it was something personal, like the children were being bullied, or sometimes it was to do with um, just being too nervous to sort of enjoy playing. So not 
really performance anxiety um, in terms of how musicians have this as a professional concern. But that was the other side of things was as a musician, uh, I noticed, I mean, I'm lucky because I'm the drummer and I get to sit at the back of the stage and my gig is mostly everyone's bum. (laughs) That's what I see. And the crowd is somewhere further off. But for the singers, you know, they have to stand at the front of the stage and actually do eye contact. And I didn't really experience how terrifying that can be until I went into academia and had to give my first public talk. And then I started to really understand how performance anxiety can be detrimental. But for me at that kind of stage, it was just realizing that different people were coping with different problems. And I wanted to learn how to help them really. Um, So I started off training as um, a counselor and hypnotherapist. Um, as part of a sort of psychotherapy approach. Uh, But I kind of became frustrated with that and wanted to know more about what was happening in the brain. And especially with performance anxiety, I mean, musicians have to perform under such extreme conditions with the lights and, you know, it's really like not a normal situation to put yourself into such a high stress performance mode. Um, So I wanted to know more about what was happening with the brain And somehow or another, I talked my way onto the Music Mind and Brain Masters at Goldsmiths in London. And I mean, this was a place where I had walked past and driven past many times going to gigs just to play my punk gigs and stuff. And I'd looked in the library window and thought, oh, my gosh, those people are so clever. Imagine being like that. And then suddenly I found myself on a kind of neuroscience of music master's course and I was very, very out of my depth. So it was a steep learning curve. That's wild. I love how you've taken all these risks and jumped into these places that you really didn't know how um, how it was going to turn out. Um, and I think that's appropriate for someone who's studying the brain because the brain is such a mystery, though we know mm-hmm. a great deal and can see a great deal. There's so much still to be fathomed. And it feels like it's a the work of millennia to even understand what's going on between our two ears. Um, so speaking of big picture questions and, and uh-huh. sort of long-term inquiry, what really intrigues you most about your field? What in um, the neuroscience of music are you most excited about or most puzzled by, most curious about? Ooh, um, probably this will sound strange to psychologists, but it's people. <laughs> and I say this because what a thing I struggle with all the time is the kind of blurry lines between what we measure as psychologists, and that can range from bold signatures in neuroscience to sort of questionnaires where we just look at the mean value and potential shifts and changes of behavior to how this reflects to the individual. And people always want to know, well, what does this mean for me? And I think that's why I became so interested in applied sciences. Um, but they don't, they don't marry up too well in terms of the science of psychology and individual um, application. So I think that is still a, still a struggle. For me now, I work under this sort of overarching banner of music, health and well-being. And within that, we look at musicians' health because there are various vocational, professional strains that people have to deal with. Um, But we also look at, for example, at the moment, we've got a project looking at 
or co-creating a new literacy between teachers and researchers about how to support musicians with their physical and mental health and their well-being as three sort of separate aspects of that. Um, but also, really, working with people with Parkinson's has been incredible. I just, I've never met people who have so much courage and so much personal integrity with what they want to do. You know, they always are involved in the research and offering to help. And it really is very humbling as a, a scientist slash punk drummer to think that you might actually be doing something that will affect people on, on their personal level. And I guess that's what I'm really focused on at the moment is looking at how to optimize music to help um, or optimize the use of music in Parkinson's care. So as a sort of non-pharmacological treatment for their motor and non-motor symptoms. Can you explain a little bit about what challenges these patients face and how music helps them overcome these challenges or at least ease these challenges a bit? Yeah, certainly. So Parkinson's, um, and I hate to call it Parkinson's disease. This is one of the things I've learned from working with people with Parkinson's is that, you know, it's such a complex range of symptoms and conditions that they prefer not to kind of put themselves in this kind of disease category and think about what these symptoms are and how they meet or how they impact on their daily life. So it's a very small part of the brain that's affected, but it has so many different um, symptomologies and uh, um, impact ways of impacting their lives. So most people would associate it with this picture of a sort of stooped over person who is shaking and shuffling. And this is only the sort of bare minimum way that it can affect people with Parkinson's. I mean, it really affects so many cycles and rhythms with the, within the body. So physically, digestion and sleep um, patterns are all affected as well. And we now seem to understand that the non-motor aspects so the stiffness, um, obviously being the motor aspects and, and problems with walking are only half of it. And the depression and anxiety and apathy are also a part of, if not exacerbated by the motor conditions. So really trying to live with the fact that your body does not do what you want it to do and that you can't control that, I think is really, um, I, I think it's very difficult to live with. Um, and then as the disease progresses, there's also cognitive decline. Um, but this can take, you know, quite a long time, up to 20 years for some people. But the thing is with Parkinson's is that everybody's Parkinson's is different. And so how it affects one person might not be how it affects another. And that can also change within a person from day to day, um, sometimes dependent on their medication and sometimes not. So how does music come into the picture and improve things for these patients? Well, because um, medication, it, it does help with some aspects, but not with all aspects of um, quality of life. Um, they started to look into ideas around sensory cueing to see how you could help, for example, regulate walking, because the higher incidence of falling caused by, well, there are two aspects to do, of that. One is that pe when people shuffle 
and their balance is not so stable, they can easily fall. But there are other aspects of Parkinson's like festination, which is when people um, gain momentum when they're walking, for example. So regulating a pace is really important. And some ways of doing this have been looking at, for example, drawing lines on the floor, a bit like a zebra crossing idea, um, but also um, kinesthetic things. So like a a kind of buzzing machine, a bit like we would have sometimes drummers have these attached to their drum stools for tempo regulation, Um, but also auditory. So the most basic form of that being a metronome. Um, But now we're kind of starting to understand that there's um, a kind of richness within the musical uh, envelope that can be, not for everyone, but it can be more helpful. And this could be to do with learned music, so familiar music specifically, where people have an expectation of what's going to happen. So in Parkinson's, um, people's not just motor abilities, but their perception of time can be altered as well. So having this external cue to help, uh, well, actually, there's a a really famous researcher called Simone de la Bella, who talked about temporal scaffolding. And so using like, if we think of a metronome as a temporal scaffolding, so a predictable thing that's going to happen, that the brain can entrain to, and then you can try to synchronize particular movements so for example steps to that but we also looked at it with dancing because we were wondering what were the underlying mechanisms of why dancing was helping people with Parkinson's and this seemed to be not just to do with um, the ability to synchronize with music that they knew but also the social aspects that musical music provides and musical activities can foster um, sort of called pro-social behaviors but that's a bit um I don't know, sciency. <laughs> I mean, basically, it's being with other people and connecting and, and being able to have fun and, and forget that you have this condition sometimes that stops you doing things. So one of the ladies I work with, she said that listening to music with Parkinson's was like, it was like you were a marionette or a puppet with your strings all tangled up. And then when you put the music on, it seems to untangle you and you can just move sort of automatically, like it, it just makes things easier. That's really beautiful and moving. I mean, forgive the sort of quasi pun there. Um, that's really wonderful. How um, how would this apply in more generally to, a pop, to the population, those that maybe don't have Parkinson's or other challenges along those lines, but how does, how does some of the things you're learning about these patients and that they're teaching you apply to all of us? Yeah, well, there's a... Uh, I know that you're interested in tech. So there's some great motion capture studies going on um, at the moment, which are showing how people move different parts of their bodies to different aspects of the music. So uh, yeah, unsurprisingly, the lower parts of our bodies tend to move more to the bass kind of frequencies. So I guess that's like, you know, as a drummer, I just like, oh, well, that's the bass drum, obviously. But yeah, that's how people tend to dance. And whereas their hand movements might be more like uh, the offbeat of the hi-hats, you know, that kind of thing. And their head might be doing something uh, slightly different, maybe it's going more with the melody. So the rhythm and melody aspects can interact with different parts of our bodies. And this is um, kind of where the ideas of entrainment and synchronization um, can be sort of pulled apart, although they're part of the same concept. So really music works because in terms of dancing and movement, because it can be predictable. 
um, and we know what's coming and we can align our movements to that. Um, but also there's a trance quality and that's why obviously trance music can be great. You can be moving in a very repetitive way and this can have, you know, particular effects. That's really exciting. I love that um, each parts of our body sort of map onto a different, <laughs> a different, different section layer. of the musical. Yeah, that's really, really cool. So are there musical elements people tend to overlook when they're thinking about how music might um, help them if they're trying to complete or um, enhance a physical activity, whether it's settling down their body or running a, a fast mile. I mean, I know you've written a little bit about um, adding classical music to the mix mm -hmm. and kind of questioning our genre assumptions about what can help us enjoy a fitness experience more. Yeah. So I was wondering if there, if there are sort of generalized elements that you want to point to that people should be thinking about as they're uh, thinking about what music might help their body achieve a certain state or goal yeah sure um i mean I, in psychology we tend to think in terms of arousal and valence so valence being i guess more like happy or sad music and there's a lot of comfort that people get there's some great research going on in finland about this um about listening to sad music and how this can I guess, help us process our emotions, but also it can be a friend. So I think this is kind of an interesting concept as music. Music as a friend that, um, yeah, can, I mean, there's a lot of music that can be used for nostalgia as well. And um, especially for older people, this can really help with identity. And I've just been thinking about this for Parkinson's too. So they they kind of cross between all these different aspects. Sorry if I'm jumping around. But for example, great athletes um, have personal anthems often. They kind of come out to a certain song and this gets them going and it's very arousing and they kind of, you know, makes them feel alive and ready to fight. I'm thinking about martial arts or um, ready to run if it's, you know, a particular kind of sport it's associated with. Um, but also for people with Parkinson's, this idea of a personal anthem and reclaiming your identity when it's been so savaged by the diagnosis, um, thinking about who you were or trying to find a new way to become, you know, music really is an enormous part of our lives, uh, which is why I always gets me when people say, why would you study the psychology of music? And I'm like, but why wouldn't you? I mean, music is, is I know it's not everything to all people, but it's a ubiquitous or it's there with us all the time so I think I've gone off on a tangent now sorry <laughs> no it's perfect actually um so we should basically I what I'm hearing is that considering different aspects of valence and arousal as you as you put it in, in psychological terms um, can help us maybe discover some new our own new personal anthems or um, music that will help us do what we want to do whether it's you know, finally yeah. calm down after a stressful day yeah. or a week or a year <laughs> or exactly. um, get out there and really um, enjoy a run as opposed to just plodding through it thinking I have to be healthy. So, um, yeah. so music is most often studies have shown that music is chosen as mood regulation. So it's not that we, you know, it's not that we're feeling happy and then we put on happy music. Um, it's that we're know that we're getting ready for a party and we want to get ourselves in the mood and we'll choose you know get the party started or something that kind of fosters these feelings that we want to enjoy um 
But we also use music for um, anxiolytic effects, so to calm us down. And for example, when you're thinking about putting together a playlist for your workout, you have to think about the arc of what you want to do. So you have a warm up, then you maybe have some cardio, then you maybe have some weights or something, and then a cool down. I mean, that's a very basic workout, obviously. Um, But thinking about the arc of the music and the journey of the music as part of that Um, I mean, it's not like you have to do an entire playlist in classical music. It could be that you just have, I don't know, a beautiful piece at the end that helps you kind of calm down and and kind of regain your equilibrium after you've been exerting yourself. But this is um, an interesting thing, um, is that lots of people think that arousal, like having a fast beat, means that your heart heart rate will automatically increase. But This is such an interesting aspect of uh, physiological kind of psychology is that really we have yet to kind of find the answer to how music affects your heart rate. So for some people, really fast, like pumping music will actually slow down their heart rate, whereas for other people, it will have a sort of, you know, what you, you um, an intuitive arousal effect. So don't just assume that the music will get your heartbeat going. You might be one of these people that it has the inverse requirement or inverse effect on. Um, I was actually going to mention one other thing, if it's okay, which is about people with Parkinson's. And this is research that I'm thinking about at the moment, um, which is the music often acts um, as part of our reward system. And this is based on one one of many neurotransmitters involved, but dopamine is the main one we think about when we think about Parkinson's. And I think that it's interesting, but not yet answered, (laughs) to think about how, for example, the dopamine replacement therapy might affect the reward cycle um, of music consumption for people with Parkinson's. Um, There's been quite a lot of work about, for example, um, dopamine overuse and shopping and sex addictions for people with Parkinson's, but that hasn't really been looked at with music yet. And similarly, with that kind of anxiolytic effect of looking at, well, if we are having a lot of dopamine you know, put into our system, then is it possible? Like, do we need to think about music in a different way when we think about using it to relax in the evening? But loads of people I've spoken to with Parkinson's ask Alexa (laughs) to put on their favorite relaxing piece of music at night. So I think it probably does still work, but we just have to be mindful of the effects of of, uh, this replacement dopamine, I think. That's fascinating. So as you, I know speculation isn't the favorite thing of scholars, but um, you're also a drummer and a musician <laughs> and, um, you know, someone who obviously has a deep connection to music. What, um, so I'm going to ask you to get a little tiny bit speculative. If you had a magic wand, what would you create mm-hmm. or transform um, regarding the way we use or think about music, dance, and health? So if you could invent a kind of uh, space where people could come if they were looking to address certain health, health issues or a device or a certain kind of uh, music curation system or, you know, what, what would you, what do you dream about when you get to when you sort of mm-hmm. just fantasize about, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this existed? I'm kind of working on it at the moment. Um, It is the idea of developing an inner jukebox of music to help, in this instance, people with Parkinson's overcome freeze of gait, which is where they're walking and they just stop or they can't get started. 
So this idea is based around musical imagery. I'm not a fan of the word imagery when we're thinking of sound, but no one seems to have come up with anything better yet. Um, but it's the idea of music inside your mind. So a sort of endogenous experience. And this can be memories of music that you know well, or it can be music that you're just making up. I mean, I'm a drummer and obviously therefore a bit crazy. And if I go for a walk, I'm often trying to evaluate which time signature I'm walking in or making up some kind of silly rhyme to walk along to or something like this. Um, I think it's something to do with counting and being a drummer. Um, but the idea of this inner jukebox is to find a way to help people use the music inside their minds to support what they need to do. Um, and I think, I don't know, my, my PhD was really about looking at the transfer effects of musical learning in children. And there's been kind of sporadic attempts to um, support music in schools because the arts can help cognitive learning. And this is a bit of a double-edged sword. If we could understand, you know, the contribution that music makes as an art and in terms of, you know, building teamwork, building, fostering the ability to, to practice something and actually get a result at the end of it, we could think of music learning in a much better way. But uh, one of the things that really helped me with kind of being able to memorize things is a, a thing that most music teachers teach all the time, which are called vocables sometimes. So thinking of little rhymes and ways to memorize stuff. And there's been studies that have shown that if you try and learn a new language, for example, if you learn it to with some background kind of beats or something like this, it's actually much easier to remember these things. So I think really if we can embed music and using music in interesting and creative ways rather than just as a product to sell, then from an early childhood, then we can really start to see how this could become embedded in our society. And I think we would value music more because of that. I know that there are lots of now great apps being developed to help people um, in these kind of ways. But um, I mean, maybe this comes out of mother necessity being the mother of all inventions because musicians need to get very creative now about how to make a living. Um, and musicians can be very techy, so it can it can work really well. But I guess for me, I went down the kind of psychology route, and I find it interesting to think about how we can even think about music and what it can do. I love the idea of using the music in your head. And you're right, imagery isn't really what it is. It's, you know, it's it's like literally like the the echo of a sound that somehow <laughs> in you know slightly yeah. less colorfully in your head is as if that makes any sense yeah. or not. I, you you thought you were getting off on a tangent. <laughs> but it would be amazing to learn how to use that in in new ways to make our lives um go a little bit more smoothly, whether we're a child who's trying to emotionally regulate or learn, um, you know, impulsivity yep. control or someone, an elder exactly. who is, is having to relearn walking after a stroke or something like that. That's a, that's a wonderful, wonderful idea. Um, well, is there anything else from your research or from your musical life that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share? One of the things that I'm, I've just put in a bid for some funding for is to develop a way of using pressure sensitive gait mats. So they just, they don't just measure, you know, how often you step like with the pressure with your feet, um, with also with motion capture. I mean, 
going to build a sort of doorway to try and um, uh, instigate this freeze of gait problem that people with Parkinson's have, and then really look at the difference between external music, so music that we hear, and internalized music in terms of how we can use this to help regulate the stepping. Uh, so it was it was fun trying to come up with a way of getting of sort of operationalizing this as an experiment. So obviously heard music, you have to be a bit careful about, you know, which parameters you use, which keys it's in, if it's all the same tempo and this kind of stuff. But asking people to think about music inside their mind, I was like, how are we ever going to test this? (laughs) It's going to be really difficult to actually put this into action. So I made a little, um, a kind of marching song, but like a fun marching song, hopefully, that people can learn easily. And um, I think that's kind of an exciting experiment that sort of shows the nature of the work I do. So in order to actually do that, I managed to get some funding to go and work with Caroline Wyatt at the University of Hertfordshire. She's the motion caption specialist there. And then also with Jessica Gran over at the um, University of Western Ontario, the Brain and Mind Institute there to work with the gate map. And then I come back to Switzerland and try and figure it all out. And, uh, and then hopefully we'll have a new way to quantify how music inside and out can help people with Parkinson's regulate their movements. Because, you know, we live in such an evidence-based society and the more and more, um, you know, health insurance and this kind of uh, way that we medicalize everything happens. We kind of have to work on getting the evidence. But mostly what I'm interested in is what kind of music people come up with inside them. <laughs> I think this will be a fascinating journey. It's me going back to the people. They're the ones that matter. I love uh, I love that you had to compose a little piece of music as part of this um, <laughs> plan for the experiment. Yeah. That's really amazing. Um, it'll be great to see how how the participants change it as they attempt to make use of it in, in their minds. That'll be really, really interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time, Don. This has been fascinating, and I'm sure we could talk for hours more about music and movement and dance and um, the, the rhythms of the body. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> but I really appreciate yeah, thank you, you. taking the time out from your busy schedule to chat with us. And for our listeners, if you're interested in exploring more, we'll put some links in the show notes um, to some of Don Rose's uh, more lay person oriented writing, as well as some academic articles. So you can dig in a little bit more. Thanks again, Don, and good luck with the upcoming experiment. Thanks very much, Tristra. Thanks for inviting me on. If you're listening to this podcast, the Music Tectonics Conference was made for you. We want to give you the chance to win a free ticket to join us online, in the metaverse, and on a carousel by the sea. I have dibs on the dolphin, by the way. And it's actually Carousel by the Sea. It's pretty exciting. Anyway, sign up for the Music Tectonics newsletter by June 21st, 2021, and you'll be entered with other new subscribers in a drawing for a free conference ticket. Well, what do you say? You're already a subscriber? Well, that's that's no big deal. Don't worry about it. We got you covered. You'll be entered in a separate drawing just for our loyal readers. Subscribe at musictectonics.com to enter. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We put out new episodes every week. Want more? Find it at musictectonics.com. You can dig deeper into this episode, 
learn about our annual conference, get the Music Tectonics app, and sign up for our newsletter. MusicTectonics.com has it all. Also, look for Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. And connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, on LinkedIn. Peace. You're listening to Music Tectonics.